Hey everyone, my name is James Shotwell and I want to tell you a story about rock and roll. We've all heard the saying, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but I want to present to you a different take on the whole thing. We know about musicians that take the stage to sold out crowds and then throw an all night party that lasts until the bus leaves in the morning. We also know about musicians that use drugs and alcohol to write because they feel like it's the only way they can truly be creative. And sometimes we look at these artists as tortured souls or reckless party animals that just live for the moment. But we very rarely stop to consider the cost of these actions. And that's where this podcast comes in. High Notes is a recovery podcast from Holix.com in partnership with Heart Support and the Global Recovery Initiative. Each episode features an in-depth conversation with a different musician about their journey to sobriety. We learn about the highest highs an artist can experience, as well as many of the lowest lows, and somewhere in the middle, we find hope. The first season of High Notes features eight episodes and includes conversations with Burt McCracken of The Used, Anthony Green of Circa Survive, Nick Martin of Sleeping With Sirens, Justin Furstenfeld of Blue October, Ronnie Winters of The Red Jumpsuit Apparatus, Brian Head Welch of Corn, Tommy Vext of Bad Wolves, and Haley Butters of Absinthe Father. All eight episodes will be available beginning July 28th on all podcast platforms so that you can immerse yourselves in these stories and find hope and strength for your personal journey. I'm your host, James Shotwell. The series is edited and produced by Landon DeFever and features original music from the band You, Me, and Everyone We Know. The artwork was created by Nick Farron. You can find High Notes on all social media platforms and we would love to hear from you. But at the very least, we hope you listen because we have a lot to share. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Brutally Speaking Podcast. I am one of your hosts, John, and with me, as always, is Daniel Terry. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, man. I'm chugging one of my favorite drinks of all time, water. Oh. No, just water tonight. I, I didn't I didn't stop and get beer today. I'm just, I'm trying to lose weight, and and that's, uh, beer's just, uh, it's just empty calories, man. I'm not saying that I'm, like, stopping forever, but uh, I'm, I'm just kind of cutting down for the time being. Well, I figured it would be a good as time as any to actually and have a nice cocktail, so I have a nice uh, gin drink here in this uh, Red Solo cup, uh, consisting of local gin here uh, from Grand Rapids. It used to be called uh, Gray Skies. Now they are called Eastern Kill, uh, which I guess is some some derivative for something like river water or whatever, because we live in Grand Rapids on a river. Um, but it's their barrel-hopped uh, dry-finished gin, a couple of uh, squirts of uh, bitters, fresh squeeze uh, lime juice, grapefruit juice. Shake that up with a splash of ginger beer. Real good. We're going to have ourselves a fucking party. It is a party in the basement, COVID style. Yes. Um but actually, the, the gin drink itself is actually a homage to our guest, which is Jesse Leach. Uh, you probably know him from Kill Switch Engage. 
And uh, that's all you're going to hear us really talk about Killswitch Engage uh, for the next hour. You guys talk about it. I know. We do. A little bit. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Um, but by and large, it is a non-Killswitch Engage chat. It's actually a, it's actually a really nice deep dive in everything that Jesse has done outside of Killswitch, which I honestly don't know if a lot of people know how immersive of a musical career Jesse has had over the last like 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the dude's been in like so many bands and still is. What I liked about this, <laughs> what I liked about this chat is that like, not only do you guys kind of get into all of it, uh, which I can respect it, it, but also just like his perceptions of the people that he works with now. It's funny that he just, he classifies, classifies everybody from people from their old bands, which is just, which is just really funny to me. I mean, I, kind of do that on occasion too like it is kind of weird that at times when you're like when you see someone in a new band like like a good one will be like when doug robinson douglas robinson formerly of night versus uh you know starts up a new project he's been hinting at a few different projects now on his instagram and so forth and it's gonna be kind of weird not him being doug from night versus same like when yeah. he was in night versus it was weird being like oh it's doug from the sleeping so yeah. it is interesting how some people become stuck to or tied to the band that they they used to be in um you know that was sort of something we kind of touched on with jesse zaraska misery signals uh the previous week where it was like oh you're jesse from misery signals even though you've been out of that band for like 10 years but now you're back in it so yeah it is it is super weird and like even i fall into that a lot um because like when I was just recently on another podcast called As the Story Grows and I was giving kind of like my story of how I got to where I'm at today, you know, as far as being a podcaster and everything. But it's so weird whenever I listen, went back and listened to the episode and listened to his intro. He's like, Dan is most well known as being the host for discography discussion. And um, and I remember thinking that that was like I was like, that's really weird that he didn't introduce me as Dan from End of Destiny because that was just the ba- that's just just the first creative endeavor that I had ever really been a part of, and uh, and so it was like kind of a kind of a weird adjustment sort of, sort of thing. Yeah, I I don't know this this was really interesting, and you know I think it's kind of funny we just had you know episode two fifty uh, last week with uh, Jesse from Misery Signals. This one kind of fell about into our laps because of the Instagram lives we've been doing, which we've actually been posting the audio versions of those into our feed randomly um and i was talking with josh who is Killswitch's uh tech slash production manager and uh is the bass player of the weapon and so i was like indirectly josh you are one of the few reasons i have a one star rating on the podcast (laughs) thanks a lot buddy and so you know we were just kind of joking about it and then i was like i've always said though like if i could ever get jesse we're going to talk about everything other than kill switch and then lo and behold he was actually watching the instagram live and was like sounds great so then i was like okay opportunity let's let's get that set in stone and get it figured out and thankfully i was furloughed from work so i had open availability to uh to make it work and i was really nervous to do it because i was like oh fuck do i really know my shit on all these bands to really talk it in in length about these bands and you know jesse did obviously a lot of the heavy lifting but something that i thought was really interesting was just how honest he was about a lot of the different things that he's a discussed lyrically in these bands and even to the point of like with uh the empire shall fall just straight up being like yeah they're so good i was not (laughs) yeah that was that was really interesting and like it's it's hard for me to be like oh you'd like like he he's such a prolific vocalist like to me that like 
I, I, I couldn't even fathom that whenever he said it. And it's so funny that he he spent so much time trying to explain to us just how not metal he was. <laughs> like it like it was almost it was almost like a contest, you know, of, of like, oh, I mean, I I'm basically just like a closet goth. And it's like, dude, it's it's OK. Like, you, you know, um, it, it, it's all good, man. We it's okay to diversify. It doesn't make you less of, of whatever it is you are. Yeah. It was, uh, it was just kind of, I don't know. It was really surreal. Um, you know, Jesse has been someone that was a bucket list guest for me on the podcast for a long time to kind of basically have the conversation we did. Um, I'm hoping eventually, you know, when everything gets going back to normal and, and, or at the very least when maybe times of grace is, uh, New record is out and whatever. Maybe we can have him back on to uh, discuss more. That's the coolest thing about about this is just like getting to like like to have that intimate of a conversation with Jesse. And and I'm I'm bummed that I couldn't be there because I'm a loser and I work every day. I guess it's not technically the definition of a loser, but you know what I mean. Like, uh, like I just wasn't there, so I, I lose cool points or, or something like that. So yeah, I uh, I mean this this interview is kind of long as it is, so I think we should just uh, stop the blabbering and uh, get right into the interview with Jesse, and we will talk to you for a little bit on the other side. <laughs> So I had the pleasure of talking to Jesse Leach, who is most notably known as the vocalist for Killswitch Engage, but today we're going to talk about everything but Killswitch. Uh, first and foremost, this is how this came to be. Uh, I'm sure if you checked out the Instagram live with uh, Josh, who is uh, the bass player of The Weapon, which is one of Jesse's many, many, many other bands, uh, I got this, uh, I told this story about my only one-star review so far on iTunes, uh, which I'm going to read real quick for those who may listen to this and have not heard this story. Um, this is from, the title of the review is Expand, One Star, by Killswitch Engage Blues, or KSE Blues. Get someone from Killswitch on the show beside their production manager or Joel, who you only talked about Killswitch for the last 15 seconds of the interview. You have people on the show when they're getting ready to drop a new album, but the week KSE does, you have Howard on, and don't even mention that he is singing on the new album with Jesse. It's insane you have people from Bullet For My Valentine unearth all that remains in Atreyu, but not Killswitch Engage. It's pretty clear you don't like Jesse fronted Killswitch. That's obvious. <laughs> Which couldn't be further from the fucking truth. Uh, the fact... Then became, I'm going to get Jesse on at some point, and all I'm going to do is talk about everything other than fucking Killswitch, because that's how big of a fan of yours I am. That's funny, because that totally sold me. I was like, that sounds like fun. I, you know, almost everything I do, Killswitch is there. I mean, I get it. It's my career, but it's so nice that when you were like, oh, let's talk about everything but, I'm like, totally, I'm in. Yeah. Well, the the interesting thing was, like, I had just talked to uh, Jesse Zaraska from Misery Signals, their original singer, a couple of days ago, and that was, like, a three-year process. I had sent him a message on July 28th of 2017, and we just did the interview, like, two or three days ago, as of when we're talking, and I was so nervous, because I was like, fuck, man, like, I've been wanting to talk about a lot of things, basically the same thing. The crux was, let's talk about all the time that you weren't in Misery Signals, leading up to now, like, you know, they're getting ready to put out new records, so I was like, and I guess that'll kind of be the bookend is like okay now you're back in it and you have a new record let's kind of talk about that at the very end but it was really stressful for me because I was like fuck am I kind of going about this the wrong way will anyone care about the time that this person wasn't in the band that everyone knows them from 
And I said that, and then when you agreed, I was like, oh shit, did I bite off more than I can chew? But in going back and listening to your discography, I was instantly reminded of why I wanted to do this and why I put myself through this challenge, because I think anyone who has listened to you, aside from Killswitch, you have such a broad range of styles and influences and really are one of the few people I can think of other than maybe like a Mike Patton who has really put forth the time and effort to showcase all the things that you're into musically and championing and be a voice for those things as well. So, I mean, this I think this is going to be fun. I mean, at least for me, maybe for you, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, dude, I honestly get more excited to talk about that stuff because it does get ignored. You know, and even when I post up on social media about a project, in the comments, it's about Killswitch. I'm like, ah, come on, just chill for a second. And listen, I'm thankful. I'm stoked that people care that much about Killswitch. But for me, it's more fun. It's like, it's that's my one thing that I do all the time. That's my job. And I love it with all my heart. But my passion like yesterday, for example, I'm working on uh, one of my projects called Dead Trees. It's strictly electronic music, and I'm like in it, just in it. I've been in such a shit mood the past few days, and yesterday I got inspiration, and I started working on it. And within the course of the day I'm working on it, I came out of my little cave here that I call the void that I work in. And I'm just like, yeah, this is totally why I'm alive, to just continue to create and push boundaries. And like, you know, honestly, as much as I love Killswitch – I don't listen to any of that type of stuff. I'm not a, a, a modern metal guy for the most part. Like I'm really old school with my taste when it comes to metal. And if I were to put something aggressive on, I'm more of a hardcore punk guy. I don't really even like that much modern metal. So for me, it's cool. It's fun. It's a great way to express myself, but it's not my true calling, my true passion. Even though it's the one thing that I'm known for and the one thing that pays my bills, I get more excited, so much more excited for other genres of music that, I mean, trip hop, punk, reggae, ska, those are genres that I'm like, I listen to all the time. That's the shit I love. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's been kind of interesting because like a lot of times when I, you know, the shirts you can see me wearing or if you see stuff I'm posting, typically it's like, you know, like lately my big thing has been like the new Dua Lipa record I think is phenomenal. And the fact that it's really heavily inspired by 80s, you know, 80s music, um, even so much. So I think the second single is uh, the guitar line. The first guitar from NXS's Need You Tonight is like her vocal uh, for the chorus. So, I mean, it's like just things like that. You know, and even talking with uh, Chris from Stabbing Westward, we were just kind of talking about how sometimes you need to pay attention to other things because it informs you in other ways and will give you a different creative headspace to tackle something maybe if you're not as into it like you know you're saying like you might be listening to something metal and then be like oh man but i was you know i was really listening to this old uh you know dr dre beat and i really love how you know so and so went over this beat and it was kind of really crazy and weird but he was following like this like way far background synth line that was in the background and just kind of really was like really different and cool so then maybe you'll approach maybe the song and find that thing that's in the background that maybe people aren't necessarily latching onto or isn't the obvious way to write or write a lyric over that that song or that piece. And then you're like, and then it comes across way different. And it's what no one would expect because it's not from your frame of reference from here's my metal, you know, list of ways to do shit and whatever. Well, that's why you mentioned Mike Patton. And he's obviously been a huge influence on many, many, many people. The one thing that struck me about Mike Patton early on, and Angel Dust is still my reference point for that. When I heard the album Angel Dust by Faith No More, it was like, this guy's doing odd vocals in places that you would expect a scream as like a hardcore kid or a rock guy. You know, you expect to hear more aggression and he goes soft or vice versa. A part is quiet and he's doing this weird high end screamy thing or talking 
and it just kind of blew my mind and it, it makes that vocal so much more interesting and like in the early 90s coming up in the hardcore scene we had a ton of diversity at first and then when certain styles sort of like latched on like the the tough guy hardcore the beatdown hardcore where you had the chugging riffs that were exactly the same you could almost call it like mosh by numbers and you know, that, that tough guy vocal that was just so prevalent. I loved it at first, and then I got so tired of hearing it. I got so tired of going to shows, seeing the same band play over and over again, same style. So I purposely, like, you, you sent me Nothing Stays Gold yesterday. I purposely was like, I want to fucking do something completely different and, and mesh, like, this weird DC emo I was super into with hardcore, with poetry. And, you know, Nothing Stays Gold is not great. I can't sing this <laughs> I can't sing to save my life on that, but the ideas were radical and we would play shows and get people would make fun of us, you know, like sit there and make cry noises and like just anything hardcore kids do to, to mock a band when they're doing something or showing their emotions. And I reveled in that. It was a part of me that was like, fuck yeah, I'm pissing these people off because we're doing something different. And that's kind of when I got addicted to like flip the script, do something different. And uh, it's kind of been my thing, like, and it's why I sing the way I sing. It's why I developed my style the way that I did. Because I'm listening to, you have the Wu-Tang shirt. I love Wu-Tang. I love hip-hop. I love rappers. I love Gangstar. One of my favorite rappers of all time is Guru from Gangstar. The way he approached his voice, the way he, he let it rest on the beat. That, all of my stuff, my pacing comes from hip-hop and reggae. And then the sonic side of it comes from, like, gothic death metal. I grew up listening to bands like Paradise Lost, Edge of Sanity, uh, My Dying Bride. I used to love that shit, the weird <laughs> gothy stuff. Because deep down inside, I'm kind of a closet goth. Like, I worship at the altar of the cure and anything shoegazy, Cocteau Twins. Like That's my bread and butter when I was a kid, sitting alone in my room when I was 15 years old. Going to hardcore shows, being in a hardcore band, coming home and listening to the sad, sappy shit. You know, that's kind of my MO. But I mean, even, and we'll, we'll get into the, the Corinne and Nothing Stays Gold uh, thing here really quickly because you just kind of touched on a few of the things that I wanted to start with. But I mean, even if you look at like what Robert Smith or, you know, a lot of the, you know, I don't necessarily know if you want to call him goth, but I definitely think they kind of fit in that shoegazy, interesting kind of thing. Uh, Duran Duran. Um, I mean, you know, a lot of the things that they were doing were kind of really weird uh, sonics, uh, song structures and so forth. And the way that they would find their way over something, I think is very akin to like hip hop, where it's like you, you might have a lot going on, but then it's, again, it's it's finding where you kind of fit in ab in the abstract. And I think that speaks to a lot of us in hardcore punk, any of these, you know, non-pop formats or genres i think that's kind of how we all are and identify as kind of fitting in this weird niche area that's not the normal yeah artistic you know that's that's my whole thing like you know with a band like kill switch it's you can kind of for the most part you know where the song's gonna go you know to me it's always been more about the message and the passion than the song structure because a lot of our songs are pretty similar and it's what people have kind of come to expect so there's only so much breathing room I get with that project. Uh, and the stuff that I listen to, the stuff I really, truly enjoy, for the most part, is abstract stuff. I love it. I love a good hook, but you don't have to put it in the same place. Or music underneath the hook could be changed changed up. Or, you know, in Corinne, you know, I would write like a part that I would repeat, but I would repeat it over a different section. Yeah. Trying to keep it interesting and keep it artistic. And that's where I come from. That's definitely where I find my roots. But, you know, as my career morphed into what it is today, you realize what works and what doesn't on a bigger scale. And I'd much rather be fronting Killswitch Engage than working in a bar, bitter as fuck punk dude, 
be like, oh, my band still plays the same, you know, same show every weekend. And I hate all these bands that are sellouts. Like I could have been that guy, but I refused. I just said, all right, I'm going to bite the bullet and rejoin this band that's massive and stop being a bartender. <laughs> but yeah, well, my roots are definitely firmly in like artistic stuff, like abstract stuff. I love that shit. So going back to the days in Corinne and Nothing Stays Gold, you know, I've kind of been asking a lot of the people, you know, I'm originally from Delaware initially, um, but, you know, having like Ken from Unearth on and some of the East Coast bands from kind of the New England area and when that scene was kind of gaining popularity, did it feel like you were a part of something that was kind of becoming bigger than it was, even going back to the days of like Overcast, Aftershock, you know, all these bands that were kind of at the forefront of what would become probably in the next five years or so five six seven years did it feel like you were you were a part of something given the fact that corinne and nothing stays gold you weren't like your contemporaries in the area even just as a vocalist and what you were doing but did you still feel like you are part of something something that was changing and on the horizon that was going to be bigger yeah i did i did feel a part of it but um we were also outcasts corinne used to play shows with like a lot of straight edge bands those bands that were sort of like earth crisis by numbers (laughs) <laughs> and they would call us vampires you know we would get made fun of and people would like didn't get the darkness because we uh, some weird shit i'd like bring us necklace full of bones with knives on stage light candles burn incense we wouldn't wear shoes i would drool on people like we purposely pushed the dark envelope we we're more on the side of like we listen to death metal and the only bands that we kind of were into were bands like integrity dead guy bloodlet it was darker it was always about the darker stuff so play with a more clean-cut sort of straight-edge crowd, constantly being made fun of. And I think you mentioned Overcast. I think Overcast was one of the first bands to really get kids from both sides of the fence. You had the straight-edge kids, and then you had like the sort of devil core kids <laughs> becoming a thing. And then add Candiria on top of the pile, and those shows, and I even would add VOD to that pile. Mm. You were to see a show with Candiria, VOD, overcast to me those were the heavy hitters those were the headliners those are the guys that are playing in front of 300 400 500 people sometimes selling out venues and putting on the most breathtaking performances so i was kind of a a follower of those bands as much as my band was playing with them opening for them and at one point even headlining over candiri before anyone even knew who they were we felt a part of it but we were always a step behind we were always sort of the opener we're always sort of like the you know, the outcast. And I kind of embraced that as much as it sucked playing smaller shows and people didn't get us. It really taught me a lot about creativity. It taught me a lot about like sticking to your guns and doing what you feel in your heart, regardless of trends. You know, we weren't the trendiest sounding band, but I look back on that now and I'm proud. I'm proud of that, man. It's cool. I think it's just interesting, especially, you know, with a a site like Return to the Pit and, you know, following Brian Fair. I mean, especially on Twitter, you follow Brian and you can tell he's watching some fish live thing, the way he's, you know, live tweeting about it. And, you know, he'll be posting some of these old photos from back then. And it's like, this was me at like my most like hippie bohemian, no shoes on stage, blah, blah, blah. And you're just kind of like, in theory, if you were like, this hippie dude's going to front this like metal, wait what would become like kind of the proto metalcore band, you'd probably be like, no fucking way. But then you see it and you're just like, nope, that somehow makes perfect sense. And I feel like that was kind of the thing about music back then is maybe it's because social media, obviously it's because social media didn't exist, that people just like things because they like things and word of mouth would make you feel like you needed to be there. It didn't rely on, come check out my band. We're playing on this Friday. Hope you like it. 
You know, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't like that. It was like people actually gave a shit about going out and having fun and supporting well, each other. I like the point you made about social media. You know, there was legends. There was stories. People would talk. You didn't want to miss an overcast show. Right. You didn't want to. Like, I would scramble. I would I'd drive anywhere from Maine to Connecticut to New Hampshire even to see bands I loved. I did that with Bloodlet. When I first got into Bloodlet and they were on tour, I followed that band around, man. I worshipped at the altar of Bloodlet. And it was just something about it. You just didn't know what was going to happen. Happen and you couldn't if you weren't at the show you missed out it's not going to be on youtube it's not going to be anywhere you had to be there or you didn't you weren't there and like i replay a lot of those shows and had these memories where you're having this moment this connection with the band and the audience and there was a real special feeling of like this is ours mm-hmm. the only ours i even went as far because i was such a little fucking elitist in high school where I would wear T-shirts of bands and people would ask me, like, ah, you know, I would never give out mixtapes or information. Be like, this is my music. Fuck you. Go listen to Pearl Jam. Like, I didn't want to share my hardcore stuff when I was younger because it was it felt like it was mine. It was so special. And, you know, and then back then, like, Victory Records swooped in and started signing all these bands. And I remember us, Victory Records, fuck Victory Records, like, sell out shit, you know, and that it kind of, like, Victory was one of those labels that really sort of morphed the scene into a much bigger thing, for better or for worse. Um, I don't know what my point was. Oh, so just, it was really special music. And you can't really replicate that now because the moment someone pulls out their phone and holds it over their head, it's like, ugh. and I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. But growing up the way that we did, I, there's a magic to that shit. And that is why I am the way that I am. And I still view those bands with such a precious feeling because of that. And Overcast was my band. I used to follow them around. I would be the guy pointing on top of the crowd. And, you know, when the opportunity came in to jam with Mike D later on in years, I, the reason I wanted to do it, because I was like, dude, Mike D from Overcast. Holy shit. You know, this is something we're going to touch on throughout the chat, but Corinne and Nothing Stays Gold are pretty diverse musically. Um, and I was wondering, especially given how young you were at the time, how hard was it to traverse writing lyrics over those projects as you're kind of figuring out who you are and what you want to say. Yeah. I mean, with Corinne, it was all dark poetry. I was very much into uh, kind of numbing myself out through the psychedelic experience and, and various powders. Like I was really into drugs and stuff. So that was kind of what fueled Corinne was like a, a drug, weird drugged out state and an obsession with graveyards and death metal and demons and all that bullshit. So that really wasn't that hard. It just kind of wrote about what I was into. And then, uh, Nothing Stays Gold, I made a conscious decision because I was really getting into the Discord sort of, uh, you know, emo-y, before emo was even a, a word, you know, a dirty word, <laughs> really getting into that shit. And I'm like, how do I blend, you know, bands that I was going to see, like Hoover and, uh, uh, I mean, I was obsessed with Fugazi. How do I blend this sort of style with the hardcore and metal of Corinne because the guitar player from Nothing Stays Gold was the guitar player in Corinne. And we sort of had a conscious drive to create something different, but still reminiscent of Corinne, which I don't think we did at all. And that made it a little more difficult, but I just kind of wrote about my feelings. It was really that simple, uh, bringing that sort of emotional uh, topic to the music. And then, you know, Nation in Distress, which I love that you you sent that to me because really that's my first time speaking out politically on a bigger stage and it's still relevant today. I still believe the things I wrote down in that song and, 
you know, if that song came out today, I'm sure I get a ton of hate for it. But um, it's still what I believe. It's not lost on me. My culture, my community, the hardcore and punk community, that's what we're steeped in. Rebellion. We're steeped in thinking for yourselves. Fuck the system. That has never left me. It's something I'm going to be until the day I die. It's a lifestyle. And bringing that into metal music can really work or it can turn against you because metal's a whole different playing field of people who didn't have the same roots and experience that someone from a punk or hardcore band does. But um, I think with Nothing Stays Gold, it was a matter of just how do we blend our influences. It didn't quite work out, but uh, it was a cool experiment. It was one of those where... It's almost. It was kind of weird because I, I was actually texting with uh, Joel's brother Tyler yesterday, and I was like, I forgot nothing. Stays gold was on Devil's Head, and so I was like, it's kind of interesting because you know, like Tyler's old band Once Beloved, and you know, nothing stays gold, and a lot of the other bands. I was like, I felt like a lot of the roster. You could see the potential, but like no one really ever got past the first record. It seemed on Devil's Head, like it was like, eh, now that band's broken up. Yeah, and so it was just like one of those like where you kind of look at it and you're like. I wonder where the next Nothing Stays Gold record would have gone. Is the song like we're talking about, would that kind of have been more of the direction you would have leaned? And it would seem like the answer would probably be yes, given some of the lyrics that you would have, that you ended up doing later on. But I don't know, it's just interesting kind of thinking about that, like where it's like, uh, where would this have gone? And then I kind of was even thinking, you know, and it's funny you brought it up. Did you catch flack for introducing, you know, politics into your band? Because like you said, at the time, that you really hadn't up until then. No, I mean, Nothing Stays Gold's audience was, we would play at the most, I'd say. We did Metal Fest one year in front of like maybe 200 people that didn't give a shit about us. Um, but prior to that, most of the shows we played were at VFW halls, people's basements. We weren't really a club band. We played in a lot of the squat squat places in Providence. And people, for the most part, just didn't give a shit. So it, it didn't even matter that I was really, I could have written about anything and no one would have given a shit. You know, we We'd play with any people from like, um, uh, you know, the Murder City Devils. We opened for them once, and the crowd could give a fuck about us. <laughs> <laughs> we also opened for um, a band called Catharsis. I think they're called the. Uh, Is that Rob Flynn's old band? Uh, no, That's a bad joke. That's a bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> Those crazy anarchists, dude. Uh, it's a really cool fucking band. Um, what the hell? They're, they're oh, I'm thinking of the infamous Gehenna. We played with a hardcore band, Gehenna, too, that were from San Diego. So we would play with all these extreme bands, and we're up to, you know, one of our songs is talking about, like, looking back on memories and pictures, you know, it was inspired by The Cure, and I'm up there, like, singing my little heart out, and these kids are like, who the fuck is this band? <laughs> Dude, it's funny. Pictures of You has been, like, my go-to jam the last two weeks, like, really hardcore. Good. Even the remixes of that song. So good. I love um, kind of fast-forwarding a little bit to Seamless. I mean, this kind of sees you reuniting... In, as like an offshoot kill switch project with uh, P. Cortez, you know, playing guitar. And what's interesting about Seamless, the more I go back and listening to it, is just how it combined new genres that fans of you from Kill Switch really probably weren't aware that you were into. You know, you're kind of getting into the stoner groove kind of metal stuff. And it seemed to me, especially on the last Seamless record, that lyrically you're addressing maybe a lot of the mental issues that you kind of were going through at the time. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it with hindsight, you know, and knowing what I know about you now, or if that really kind of was what I was hearing. But, you know, I'm wondering overall if it was hard to bear so much of yourself in this music, because it seemed like there was a lot of passion and conviction that was just kind of 
resonating from you at this point on the seamless stuff yeah i was in a really dark period in my life during seamless um my relationship at the time and my um excessive drinking was huge like i became a total drunk when i left kill switch for the first time working three jobs back to back with no desire no ambition and seamless came along and dropped in my lap and it was the way it was put out to me it was like hey let's just start a band we'll play bars we'll get a free bar tab and we'll just <laughs> and rock out and uh i was actually sent a mix cd to entice me uh and on it was you know um caius corrosion conformity uh Soundgarden, um deep purple black sabbath cactus and it just spoke to me i'm like yes i could do this it's not the metal that i've been known for it's something completely different i could probably get away with being sort of um you know um a faceless guy in a bar band for a while and that was kind of my honest like what i wanted i just wanted to be in a band that had fun and i could get drunk drunk and not pay for it (laughs) (laughs) you know it definitely became more than that but Truth be told, it wasn't a very successful band. Like, we did tour. We did okay because we were opening for bands like In Flames and Fu Manchu. And uh, and we did odd tours. But on the whole, that band was not successful. Um, I had to live off like $10 a day on tour. We'd come home broke. And I actually even had to pay money to quit that band because our band credit card was like in the negative from touring. So it was like odd times in my life. I was broke and I was drunk and miserable the whole time. So, yeah, that band was definitely therapy for me i projected my feelings my emotions what i was going through and what i wanted for myself which was remnants of the positive message of kill switch pulled in to sort of the blues and the darkness that i was going through so it's a mixed bag but that band is full-on therapy for sure it definitely feels like you know i know this is probably a song a lot of people are gonna catch on but i mean it's it's one that just is so powerful like the first time you hear it, like anytime i've ever played this song for people they're like well shit what is this this rips cast no shadow but man like some of your screaming on it and so forth it just it it doesn't feel like okay here's where i do my scream it just feels like no like this is gotta come out of me right now this this emotion this just raw energy this whatever this is and listening back to you know that last record and listening to the project as a whole, like I said, it just always kind of hits me where I'm like, I don't feel like this comes from a place of like jamming with my buddies. And this is just kind of what I came up with. It's like, no, this is like maybe the guys came up with some shit and they're like, yeah, this rich fucking fucking got a nice like stompy groove to it. And then all of a sudden here comes Jesse over and just like fuck my life, you know, kind of sh- like, that's not what you sound like, but it's just like, it just, it's really intense lyrically yeah. to listen to, um, <laughs> which as such, this might be, a sh- what was that? Just jamming with my buddies. <laughs> not at all. But I mean, like, you know, this might be a shitty way to look at it, but you know, I, I have always found that your compassion and energy in your music to be the thing that always draws me in. But I'm wondering if it feels futile sometimes knowing that something you've literally poured so much of yourself into doesn't maybe react the way that you would hope it would yeah absolutely it's i feel like if i can be honest every album i put out i feel disappointment and i feel the desire for more connection and the bottom line is i'm a deep thinker i i come from a very deep place and i can't expect the world to be the same way so i just put out what i put out and i have to force myself to just accept the fact that it's not going to be received the way that I want it to be received. And sometimes that's good because it's a humbling lesson as an artist 
once the song is out there, once you've put it out, it's not yours anymore. So I've stopped explaining myself for the most part lyrically, and I've actually even stopped writing with a more direct message. I've tried to write in a more poetic way to allow the listener to sort of put their clutches in it and put their life to it and, and own the song. And I've written songs and people will listen to them and they'll write me messages and be like, this song means so much to me, blah, 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 blah. In the back of my mind, I'm like, song has nothing to do with what you think it does, but cool. I'm not going to say shit about it. <laughs> uh, and I think it's, it's been a process for me as I've grown older to let go of the ego, let go of that. You guys don't understand. You don't understand. Because I get that even with my live performance, you know, performing alongside Adam D from, you know, and Killswitch. It's like, you can't take yourself that seriously. You've got to chill the fuck out and allow people to drink beer and be maniacs. And people are there to party and forget their troubles. And I'm up there with the weight of the world on my shoulders, trying to put everything I have into that music. And, you know, in the past, it's been a detriment to my health because I have damaged my voice. I have gone into depressions. I have dealt with so much just putting this crazy anxiety, anger, fear, sadness into my music. So I think over the years I've learned to sort of channel that and put it out there, but also keep it at an arm's length and perform as opposed to living through every single lyric as I sing it. So it's a, it's kind of a dance between being present to the moment and then allowing the performance to take over. And that's taken me a long time to figure out, honestly. It's really interesting. You reminded me of when I saw uh, Bad Flower a while ago. And not really a band I'm like super into, but it was really interesting to see their singer Josh. I don't remember what the song was. I know it's like their big hit or whatever, but it's like kind of a like really fucked up, like, you know, kind of radio hit song that he has. Um, and, you know, he was like, maybe I'll tweet about this later and tell you about what I'm feeling right now, uh, but I'm not okay. And then, like, you know, he plays this song and it's, you know, kind of really. It felt like on the verge of like something disastrous could happen at any moment when you're watching it. And so the dude ends up, you know, tweeting, I think later that night or the next day, it was like, I was almost in the midst of a full blown panic attack thinking about the song and what it means to me and all this kind of stuff and the fact that it's re resonating so much and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of one of those where it's like, yeah, man, you gotta like, I know you like want to feel it, but at the same time, like, it's not good either. And so, you know, it's always funny when people are like, it's, so weird that Adam just, you know, doesn't give a shit. I was like, no, he gives a shit and everything that matters. But then the live thing, it's like he realizes, like, things can fuck up and whatever. And he's almost kind of got, this isn't a, a shit, like, shit talking him, but it's almost like an idiot savant kind of thing about him where you're like, he realizes that the thing that matters and needs to be perfect and executed flawlessly is what ends up on the record. Everything else after that is all the fun part of being in a band and is the superficial bullshit that doesn't technically matter. That's very accurate. In the studio, he's like a perfectionist to uh, a degree that can be so annoying at times, but I get it. But yeah, you know what, man? It's like I've talked to him about this because we've had discussions. And in the early days with Times of Grace, for example, when I started touring with him again, I would get bummed. I'd be like, dude, this song, like, we're singing about like some heavy shit. Like, why are you talking about like dicks? And like, it's like, I don't like that. If you want to do that in Kill Switch, do that with those guys. I was literally one of our conversations when I was in Times of Grace because I wasn't used to it. I was like, no, you're taken away like from the artisticness of this band. And, um, you know, funny enough, I had to change all that up. But I think there's a, a fine line. And I still have moments where I get choked up doing certain songs. And sometimes I let the audience in on it. Sometimes I don't. But, um, you know, there's extremes. Like I remember seeing Fiona Apple many years ago. 
And uh, man, it was just awkward. It was awkward. It was like, well, she's sort of awkward in and of herself, though. Super talented, right? But like, just, and I just try to like, I think the bottom line for performance is make the audience feel what you're feeling, but give them a, a good time. I, it's the difference between being in a small band playing in a small venue with a bunch of like-minded people that are going to really appreciate you preaching and talking about this thing that matters so much to you versus a large room of people who are of mixed um, origins and frames of mind. And some people are literally just there to party. So you have to know your audience and give them what they want. Give them a good time. So Adam's philosophy is make the audience happy. Make them laugh. Make them have a good time. We want to have them leave with that good feeling. And I totally back that now. Where When I was younger, I was like, no, the message is so important. Like the music speaks for itself, but everything else around it, I've learned to desire. My desire is I want someone to feel like they're in our living room. They're sitting at a bar with us, making that huge space feel intimate. And how you do that is engaging with the audience in a very friendly manner. Tell jokes, just be personable. And like, that's more important than standing there going, this is very important. Majority of the audience is like, just play the fucking song. Kind of have to know who you're playing to. And I try to strike the balance between moments where I'll literally say, hey, everybody, do you guys mind? I'm just going to get real, real quick for a second. And I'll keep it brief and I'll say what I got to say and then we carry on. Instead of like, you know, back in the hardcore days, <laughs> everybody sit down. I need to talk about equality for the next 10 minutes. And I've been to shows like that and I sat down and I listened and I'm like, right on. But not everyone's like that. It's funny. The moment I came to that same conclusion that that basically Adam has kind of showcased to you and kind of talked to you about is when I was doing a show review at Janet Jackson and it really bummed me out. You know, they're playing black cat, that fucking guitar riff, the band's on fire, but they're pushed back into the shadows of the stage. And I'm just kind of like really bummed that the music that, you know, Terry Lewis and Jimmy jam created isn't the focal point. And Janet's clearly lip syncing and, and all this kind of shit. And I'm like, kind of like getting bummed out and I'm kind of writing some of these things as I'm jotting notes down. My wife just like put, puts her hand over my phone and then just goes, look around. People don't give a fuck about that. They just want to have a good fucking time, sing songs that they know. And, I, and then I kind of looked around and I saw people who were like in their Sunday best. They, they were showing out. They were dancing, having a good fucking time. You could tell some of these people, you know, they were probably high school sweethearts, you know, been together for 20, 30 years. And I looked around and that, that, like her telling me that just completely changed my mindset. And I was like, I got to stop being the elitist, like music, music fan and be like, you should, you should be, you know, have the band people come out and, you know, be more on stage and present. But then I was like, it's not about that. Cause like, that's why they're, they're hired guns probably. But their, their whole thing is to provide the background literally for Janet to do her thing and put on the show that everyone wants to see from her. And once she kind of said that, it's kind of changed how I've looked at almost every show I've gone to ever since. Because I realized, like, you know, maybe this band isn't technically perfect tonight. But you know what? The band's having fun on stage. Like, they made a mistake, and they're all laughing on stage and smiling. And and it's those human moments that kind of, I think, recreate what we're looking for when we go to live music. Or what is perceived to be live music in the uh, sense of Janet Jackson. Yeah, I mean, the lip sync lip syncing thing has always bummed me out because I've worked so hard <laughs> to use my stupid voice. Uh, and that happens in metal too. I've oh, on, I know. I've been on tour with bands and I'm like, oh my God, 
that guy's on the laptop is working harder than the singer is right now. Holy shit. And it blows my mind. And that's something I'm really proud of with Killswitch. Like what you see is what you get. You know, if you want perfection, listen to the record. Come see us live. You know, one of us might be a little too drunk. One of us might be sick. One of us might not be paying attention and start this wrong song. And instead of making those moments, moments where we kind of look at each other and go, fuck, dude, you just laugh. And that's the beauty of learning to be a good performer versus just being an artist and a writer. You've got to separate the two. And you also have to know your audience. You know, you're talking about the Janet Jackson show. Pop music is a completely different world. And like you have to go to those shows with that. You take the hardcore punk guy hat off and just go there and just enjoy it. And I've had to do that too with, with some of the bigger shows I've seen. Or going to a festival, playing a festival as a metal band, and the headliner is a pop act. And everyone in the band and crew is like, oh, we are going to get beers and go check out the, the live, you know, the, the headliner. And it's something I might not be a total fan of, but you just put your bullshit aside and you go have fun. You enjoy the experience. And it's, you know, coming from the background that we come from, it's just age. You, you grow out of that elitism, yeah. even though it's still there. and <laughs> It still pops up. Yeah, and like I'll, you know, my my girlfriend, for example, has some completely different style of music she likes to listen to. She's really into like the '90s radio rock stuff, and she'll put on songs, and my toes curl up, and I'm like, oh, this is so cheesy. <laughs> the moment I talk shit about it, it bums her out. She's like, come on, shut up! Like I just want to hear the song, and I'm like, yeah. And then, believe it or not, there's been some of those songs and bands I've been like, oh, this is pretty good. <laughs> bands that have been like, fuck that band, and now I'm like, oh, that, that's pretty creative, actually. Yeah. You know, it's been interesting going through, you know, your catalog and your musical past endeavors and realizing how much of your words have rung true still today as if you had written them, written about them as if they were happening in current times. You know, we already touched on Nation in Distress and, you know, recently Choir of Angels from The Empire Shall Fall came to mind. And is it, does it, I mean, I know you kind of touched on it a little bit ago, but is it interesting to you to see how even lyrics from a decade or so ago still ring true today? Yeah, it's. It's two parts. I'm proud of it because I did have the foresight and I did have the wherewithal to call those things out. But it's also really sad because I feel like as a human race, we've progressed, but not a lot. You know, um, off the top of my head, you know, I would like to say that we've progressed in certain areas. But the moment I just said that right now, I realized we really haven't. Like, look where we are now. It's just awful. And I think it's a matter of perception because I think we're just seeing how awful it is because of social media, because everyone's got a camera phone. I think it's always been fucked up. And uh, for me, I just made it my duty to, to call it out. As much as people hate to hear the truth, it's got to be spoken. You have to bring these things to light. And a song like Choir of Angels, holy shit, people get mad about that song. And the crazy thing is, though, and I even say it in the song, I ask you, like, if you're mad about this, how are you not mad that we've been lied to about 3,000 people dying and why they died? Right. How are you not mad that science proves that that was not the way it went down? The way that we were told is 100% a lie. How does that not make you angry but me saying, hey, something's fucked up here, makes you angry? And that's happening a lot nowadays. And it's that whole like Orwellian thing of like the more the truth gets stifled and, and manipulated – the more angry people are when they hear the truth. 
because it just destroys their worldview. It destroys their little cocoon that they like to live in where they believe that the government is there serving our best interests. They believe that all the things that they're telling us are facts and you've got to stay by these regulations and do this and do that and you're going to be okay. And it's all bullshit because it boils down to power, money, and that's it. And I've been saying that since day one and I'll continue to call out the bullshit. I could go on about this for hours and I'm sure I would lose tons of fans, but uh, I fucking hate our government and they're a bunch of liars and I don't believe anything they say. So anytime something comes up, my first reaction is bullshit. So I have to do my research. So I will literally go to all the shitty sites, see they're all saying the same thing, compare all of them. I'll go to the weird, you know, extremist right, extremist left. And then I just either come to a point where I've kind of figured out how I feel about it or I'm just like, fuck it, I don't get it. I have no idea what's going on. So for me, it's just writing my perspective of like, I don't have to nail a point or stand and say I'm this or I'm that. I'm literally just saying, think for yourself, question this shit. We are living in fucked up times. That's the period on the sentence. So if you're not thinking for yourself and not thinking critically and sort of doing the checks and balances, you're a sheep and you're part of the problem. Yeah, I... It, I've been having a lot of conversations lately about how we literally have the world's wealth of information at our fingertips at all times, and people will just so – I don't even know the word I want to use, but just so – they'll just spread shit. They don't take the time to take the two extra seconds to just go like look at it and be like, that doesn't sound right, so I'm going to like double check and make sure that's accurate, and and or at least maybe – Read about something you don't agree with, so you can at least, when you're arguing your point, quote-unquote, you at least have some ground to stand on to be like, I understand where you're coming from. However, let me counter, counter, not balance, counter your point with actual facts that I've learned. So it's like, then that's what people aren't willing to do, and that was something that I learned in fucking debate class, where it's like, we're going to have you debate something that you don't agree with, because if you can argue, eh, that, that that's not the word I want to use either, if you can have a discussion with someone from a perspective that you don't even believe in, but you're able to talk through to kind of maybe make someone else agree with you or at least see your side, I think that speaks volumes about what we don't do because so many people are not even wanting to listen to you. They just want to wait for you to stop so they can keep talking at you. And conversations don't happen anymore. 100%, 100%. And that's why I've sort of like, I've let my art speak for, for itself. You know, the track I did with Rob Flynn, Stop the Bleeding, case in point. I knew that that was going to cause, and I'm like, not shocked, but it's still baffling to me that a song that is called Stop the Bleeding, which is about wanting to unify people and to raise awareness about the corruption and abuses of power that are facts. They're facts. That's happening. It still created this shitstorm. And I got to a point, honestly, where I'm like, there is no discussion of this topic. People are coming at me with the most ridiculous shit. And you're right. They're not even listening to what I say. So I just stopped saying it. I'm like, the song speaks what I said. It's there. It's out there. Take it or leave it. I'm done with this shit because I'm getting shit on. I'm getting angry. I'm getting annoyed. And I'm like, I'm not going to censor you. I'm going to leave your stupid comments. You guys can all debate amongst yourselves. And I'm done. I'm not going to respond to it. So I try to pick my battles. You got to know who you're talking to. If someone's willing to discuss something, yeah, I'll engage you for the most part. But it doesn't really go down that way. It's not discussions. There is no sort of intelligent tick for tack. It doesn't really happen, especially on the internet, because you have these people who they can be as brave as they want. 
because they've got the protection of this stupid device that we have where I would want to have, and I had this the other, last week, I'll get to that in a second, a face-to-face conversation where you're reading people's body language. You're hearing the tone of their voice. You're not just reading words on the screen. There's a lot that gets lost in the shuffle. So I don't even want to engage people anymore on social media. So if I see someone after a show and they approach me and we talk about it, thousand percent respect for that shit and i try to make myself available for that type of stuff and it's been great like the few times that i've taken the time to do that i've even gone to bars with people and sat down and had discussions it's rare but it happens i leave feeling like thank god like we may leave disagreeing on the topic but we just had a nice conversation so last week i was taking my kayak out of the river because i live up in god's country in the catskills and uh it takes me forever to get my kayaks back on the car and there was this people having a discussion across you know doing social distancing park car parked on one side of my car and a woman in a beach chair sitting on the other side of my car so i'm in the middle of it i'm packing my car minding my business and they're talking about the black lives matter versus all lives matter and like i couldn't bite my tongue and i'm like you know these two like middle class white people talking about why we shouldn't be raising the black lives matter thing and I don't give a shit about the you know political organizations. The topic itself about putting black struggle on blast right now, why it's important. So I couldn't help myself. I was like, I interjected and I did it with respect. And we had ten minute conversation and I left there with those two people questioning what they thought. I gave them a respectful, calm idea. I said, think about this. Put yourself in their shoes. And I said, I lived in the ghetto. I've seen how this works. I've seen it firsthand. I have friends who have witnessed it. I've got friends in jail for a joint versus a guy who, you know, a, a white drug dealer that was found with ounces and he got a slap on the wrist and paid a fine. Like there is something going on here. And I took the time to calmly explain that. And it changed the perception of those two people. The conversation changed. And when I was able to leave respectfully, they were still talking about it. And I made them think. And I was like, this is the stuff of life. It's been funny because in light of all this, like at least here in Michigan, you know, we have our bars open, which most of them have just recently closed back, to, <laughs> closed back down. Um, but it's been interesting to at least see people engaging in the dialogue of everything. Most of the time people get upset and then it turns into, well, I guess we'll just agree to disagree and, and try to move on and talk about something else. But it's it's been interesting to see that at least it seems because it's everywhere that it's making people have the awkward conversations that maybe they don't want to have. Yeah, and I think that's, if nothing else, if that's happening, then job done for some people, you know? You don't have to be out there protesting in the streets with a sign. As long as you're doing something like engaging in that conversation with someone at a bar, hopefully peacefully, or your neighbor, or your uncle, or your, you know, people have these weird, deep-rooted, racist ideas that don't even realize that they're racist. It's worth the conversation, and that's the only way we're going to progress is through actual conversation but uh yeah that's that's tough to come by so i I guess i pick my battles you know and i let my music speak for itself and i'm going to continue to write those kinds of songs because hopefully it is creating some kind of a change somewhere or influencing somebody who may like i'll pass the torch to and they go on and have a bigger platform that's if nothing else that's my biggest wish is to hopefully influence somebody who does grow up to be a larger-than-life character that can affect change on a much greater level. Kind of a, a, as best of a segue as I can think of to get onto this, you know, speaking of using your platform and kind of trying to raise awareness to things, 
Uh, you've been really outspoken in the last few years about your own mental illness and how it affects you day to day, how it's affected you know your relationships, uh, however those may be. And you know, I've kind of wondered if you feel like that subsequently what's pushed you to be more so creative within so many different genres is that it's something that you feel allows you to channel certain feelings that maybe aren't the right fit for a quote unquote metal guy or song or whatever. Yeah. I, I've tried to like really sort of stretch that boundary a little bit and I have done it with certain kill switch songs, but unfortunately those songs stay on record and we end up never playing them live. Some of my favorite songs I've written for that band, we probably won't ever play live because they are a bit different. They do touch on, a more emotional side uh, and it's a softer side. Um, so yeah, it is nice to have, I mean, case in point, the, the, uh, I've got an ambient project called the way back within and to your average listener, it probably would sound like music you're going to hear when you go get a massage. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not for everybody, but creating that music has been medicine for my soul. I write with, the thought in mind of like, how can I help relax myself and in turn relax somebody? So the way back within is my anti-anxiety. When I feel just when I'm in this weird spot, I'm like, there's got to be a chord I can hit that will just do it. And that's usually how those songs come about. I'll be on my computer, my laptop, my keyboard, and I'll hit a chord. I'm like, ooh, I like that. And I've even set the BPMs to the the pace of somebody's heart rate and a song will start out with a certain BPM and I'll slow it down as the song goes down. So there's cool ways I can do that with that project. Then there's a uh, dead trees, which is more of a gothy dark. Um, and it's definitely stuff I would never write for kill switch. It wouldn't work at all. And then the weapon which is in your face, punk rock shit, anarchist, like fuck the government, which I do a little bit in kill switch, but I'm very careful with how I present it. So I'm not dividing the crowd. You know, if you go up there and you spit anarchy and fuck the system, which I've done a few nights on stage with Kill Switch, you're going to get a mixed reaction from the audience. Um, I think it's important for me to have those different outlets. Uh, absolutely. Even if they don't really do anything or see the light of day. I, most of the songs I've written will never see the light of day. I had a trip out project for years and I never put anything out with it. And it didn't matter. It just I go back and reference those songs and be like, oh, I remember the night I wrote that. I needed to do that. It reminds me of a great line by a, a great writer, uh, Mark Kozalek, who's got a couple of projects called The Red House Painters, Sun Kill Moon. Very folky and sort of uh, ambient and just a lot of classical guitar. And like he's just a mellow, mellow dude. At least his early stuff is. Um, he has a line in one of the songs where he talks about picking up a guitar and playing it till it sounds the way that he feels. And that always carried with me with music, whether it be a riff or a piano lick or something, when you hit that certain chord and your body just exhales and you're like, this is what I needed. Music is complete therapy for me. And I need it, I need it. It keeps me alive. And if my audience is two people, or if my audience is 10,000 people, I gotta do it regardless. You know, something that you have said in past interviews that really kind of spoke to me because it, it took me right back to this time in my life as well is you've talked about your time in the service industry and I know from working in kitchens and so forth that how diverse the cultures and such can be and really exposing each other to diverse music 
Um, I can think of a lot of different bands and styles that I would have to endure and then grew to love. Uh, so, you know, cause you're, you're bonding over your time in the trenches basically. And it kind of becomes a soundtrack to your, your food, like food warfare. <laughs> yeah. I have so much love for bartenders, servers, cooks, chefs, even stand-up comedians, musicians, kind of all cut from the same cloth. None of them are sane. None of us are sane. Uh, we all have uh, strange uh, idiosyncrasies and habits and addictions um, or rituals that we have to do. And I've really grown to love that, the misfits, the outcasts. You know, um, As far as music goes, I'll do a case in point, working at a bar, hearing Tom Waits for the first time. And when I first heard it, I was like, what the fuck is this shit? Ugh. And now I'm absolutely obsessed with Tom Waits. And it was the right place at the right time. Hearing um, his music, you know, after hours, we were shutting down the bar. And that same song I heard earlier in the day came on again. And I was having a drink with my the fellow staff members. And it was like, oh, yeah, totally. I get this now. And it just opened the floodgates and I uh, became obsessed with Tom Waits. I think that's cool, though, you know, like having to see music from somebody else's perspective. Like I was saying earlier with my girlfriend, some of the music she likes. When I was younger, I was like, fuck that shit. This is cheesy music. No way. And now I even get emotional listening to some of the songs that she's shown me because um, context and perspective have changed. Yeah. I'm always open to that. I love that. And yeah, in kitchens, you know, I would – you'd be up in the bar, you know, because I used to be behind the bar and you have the atmosphere for the – for the people who are your patrons, your customers, and then making the trip downstairs to get more mint or some lemons or limes, and you see the kitchen, and they've got Alice and Chains on, and they're like in the shit going crazy, yelling at each other. I used to love the contrast. Like You never know what you're going to see when you go down to the kitchen and the shit that they're into, you know. and I, I loved that. Coming up, and the music's chill, mellow, candles are lit, people are enjoying their cocktail, and it's nice, and down in the kitchen, people are fucking going nuts yelling at each other that dichotomy is such a is such a um what's the word i'm looking for like a uh, metaphor to life and it's something i really fell in love with in part from working it and also in part from being a huge anthony bourdain fan and reading his book kitchen confidential which really sort of solidified my love for for kitchen staff and you know people who work in bars and, and restaurants I just think, you know, I used to work at an authentic Mexican restaurant with where I was like the only person who spoke English. So I kind of had to learn what words meant and how to communicate as best I could. And even having to listen to traditional, you know, uh, everything from like Texicano to like just everything. And it's like I couldn't understand any of the words. So I had to find something in the music that I was like, oh, this like kind of flamenco-y kind of playing style. Like that's kind of cool. Or maybe you notice like, oh, the accordion is kind of the lead instrument in this style of music. Like you just start kind of finding your way through it through the language of music. And, you know, that's kind of where culturally everything kind of starts breaking down and you kind of realize that there's a lot more similarities than you find. But I was kind of wondering, you know, has you kind of just did with the Tom Waits story being exposed to some of these environments. Is there anything that you can kind of recount where it's kind of shaped maybe you as a lyricist or as a musician? Um, I think, you know, you mentioned Mexican music, and what I love about a lot of that music is it's sad bastard music. It's drinking music. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of stuff is blues. It's blues done in a different way, and it's a lot of it's lamenting on lost love or being cheated on or 
whatever. And it's kind of like a soap opera, you know, the whole, um, a lot of music from, from Mexico and from, from Latin cultures in general. Uh, you know, I was married to a Dominican woman for 18 years. So I was exposed to a lot of, uh, Dominican and Puerto Rican and, and, uh, that type of music as well, which is just so filled with passion and heartbreak and, I love, love, love that stuff for sure, but I'm not sure that it really influenced me as a writer, except for the fact of respecting the honesty of some of these singers who are on stage bearing their soul. And you come to find out, you know, that that's from a true story. It's not just a song they someone wrote and gave to the performer. It's a song about this guy who's actually going through this fucked up divorce at that moment right now when he wrote that song. And I think what solidified it for me was being around, you know, like you said, kitchen staff or fans of that music who are diehard about it and they school your ass on it. You might be like, oh, this song's kind of dumb sounding. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is what it's about and this is what's going on. And you're like, wow, that's that's incredible. They're literally documenting their personal life and putting it on stage for all to see in its gory detail. And a lot of the, the music from the you know Latino and Hispanic cultures is is that way. It's intense. Yeah, I think of nothing else. I've just found a whole other respect for it from being around it. I think it encourages me to be more honest, but I still have kind of found my style and my niche. And I'm not sure how much, how comfortable I'd be being that detailed about my personal life in a song. Some of those songs are fucking detailed. <laughs> you know, kind of speaking to uh, some of the diverse uh, range of your what you've tapped into, and you kind of touched on some of it a little bit ago. Uh, you're one of you. Uh, I'll call them sessions because they, they, that's what it felt like when you would uh, post them on MySpace. Came and went. It's crazy. But it was kind of interesting because it's like, you know, and I think I remember from the MySpace things you would post about them because you would kind of post like a uh, sort of like a detailed description of like, this is a one one track everything. I only took a one take on it. So what you're hearing, super raw, super lo-fi doing most of the instrumentation, whether it's shitty or not, but it's more about just creating something in the moment. And, you know, I think I remember you saying that, you know, your inspirations for it were kind of like Massive Attack and Portishead and some of the other like trip hop stuff. But how did you find that project or outlet to be given the fact that it's not really like anything, anything you had done at the time? Did you find some issues trying to when you would put vocals over it, trying to find where a melody would go or trying to build something to be a melody? Like, did you find that to be a really interesting exercise in songwriting for you? It was really spontaneous and actual one takes, so I didn't even have time to think about it. Me and my uh, partner in that project, Nick uh, Solicito, who actually plays bass for The Deer Hunter now, we would just get stoned and he would turn on his Rhodes keyboard and drum machine and we'd have everything live and go. And like I would just write. And I think the only song we re-recorded was one that I had sort of a rappy part in it. And the hook, I came up with the hook on the spot. And then we recorded it, and we decided that we would fix that one up. But every other song literally was us pressing record and just sitting in a room together and going. And there was no time to think. I just came up with it on the spot. And I love that. I would love to revisit that style of writing. Uh, and there was a small little teeny, teeny project um, in between that band and Kill Switch, which was called The Archaea Bloom. Very, very rare to find that one. It's a two-song EP. I might still have it somewhere. And that blended. That Those songs were written in that same exact style. I, those guys would write, 
I would smoke a joint because back then I used to smoke a ton of weed and just freestyle and we'd write music like that. And it was kind of like uh, Sunny Day Real Estate meets like, um, I don't know, Fugazi with, with a DJ for some reason. We thought <laughs> it's a good idea to have for texture, but I love the, the spontaneity of music. Um, and I would love to do more of that in the future. The closest I've come to it is The Weapon, where I purposely didn't listen to that their demos a lot. And I came up with a general idea. And even in the studio would have like a couple sentences and just bounce off their dudes like, what do you think? Play that riff again. Like in the studio while recording, just jamming it out while we did it. And that's how we did majority of that record. And there's an energy to it that you can't fucking capture when you're doing 30 takes and trying to make sure the vocals are perfect. We did three takes per song and went through and just found what worked. And I did little fixes here and there. But for the most part, that entire EP, album, whatever you want to call it, is raw. And there's an energy to it that you can't duplicate. Uh, so I do look forward to doing more shit like that. But um, as far as the ambient and the and the like, really mellow stuff, I'm not sure I could share that energy with somebody and be that spontaneous now that I've sort of formulated how I want to do that with The Way Back Within. It's a very intimate sort of thing that I'm sort of like keeping to myself now. So I think all the spontaneity will probably be with like bands like The Weapon, projects like that. Hmm. It was always kind of interesting because like leading up to it, I was like, I don't remember what that band was called and MySpace is not what it used to be and you can't really, really listen to anything anymore if you can even find it. So like for a while, it was just written as Jesse MySpace <laughs> on my end. Yeah, that's that's all the only way I could describe what it was. But it's it's funny because whenever because it's on a random two mix CDs, the couple of songs you had, and as soon as it comes on, I'm always like, oh, I know what this is, like instantly. And it's it's weird that something so I don't want to call it throwaway, but like that most people would probably have no clue what it is, and it's very raw and in the moment feeling. That as soon as you hear it, it you know what it is, and it kind of takes you somewhere. Yeah, I don't even have that shit. I don't have copies of any of that stuff. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to go through my, my old-ass mix CDs and see if, if I can find it. And, send it to me, man, because I don't even remember. <laughs> um, kind of moving forward to Times of Grace. Uh, this was an interesting project for a lot of fans, obviously. Uh, you know, you getting back together with uh, with Adam and then subsequently Joel uh, playing as the touring guitar player. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like there's... This was kind of an interesting time for, period for me because The Empire Shall Fall had started coming out at this time, around the time of Times of Grace starting to be a thing. And I was kind of looking forward more to, I think, what Empire Shall Fall will be, given the fact that the way that you all explained it was jazz musicians learning how to play metal. And it was not like anything that we were hearing because that that kind of genre blending wasn't happening quite the way it, it has now where you're seeing all, like all these virtuosos coming out of the out of the woodwork and playing and blending all these things as the empire shall fall kind of was or it's like you know I'm looking at a uh, we the people I mean you got that like really nice jazzy like bridge section kind of and then it's just like oh I wouldn't have expected this uh in my my metal or whatever and I really love that project, but I feel like it also never got a fair shake because then Times of Grace came and overshadowed it pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And you know, shortly after that, joining Killswitch too, which definitely put the nail in that coffin, unfortunately. And those guys, they all have kids now, so it's a totally different thing. But 
Will you, I'll at least ask this, will you ever release the stuff that was supposed to be the final record? Ugh, it's it's hard to say, man. That stuff got really difficult to write to. You're talking about musicians who were, like, in my opinion, over my head with their talent. And I remember listening to the demos over and over again for the, the next two EPs that were supposed to happen and just being baffled and, like, trying to find the one, trying to find, like, the downbeat and being like, I don't know what to do with this. And being inundated with writing for other projects, touring again, I just didn't have the energy or the wherewithal to, to even do it. Those guys are absolutely brilliant musicians. And uh, maybe someday I'll revisit it when I get time. I mean, but, you know, very abstract stuff. I love what we did. I think the Solar Plexus Volume 1 is some of the most creative, adventurous stuff I've done. And it started to tell a story. It was going to be this whole concept. Um, I just got burnt out with it, man. And it just felt like it felt like I was out of my league. If I can be real about it right now, you know, like I was, a, it was appealing to me to write for the new Killswitch record because it was Killswitch, verse, chorus, verse, bridge, done. I'm a punk rock dude. I get that. With Empire Shall Fall, it took me a long time to figure out some of those songs, how I was going to put my voice there, how it made sense. I mean, literally taking my GarageBand laptop and zooming in on a part and just like. How do I make this bounce? It's so odd. So yeah, maybe someday, but I can't foresee that happening anytime soon. My plate is so freaking full. But I have absolute profound respect for them as musicians and as humans. Great people, great band. But at the moment, yeah, it's it's out of my reach. It's out of my uh, range right now. How far into the process of... Because, I mean, based on... I mean, granted, again, this is like MySpace, so forever ago. But I feel like I remember you were in the studio recording your vocals for whatever the last record was supposed to be. So it felt like you were seemingly pretty close to being done with it. No, we were just jamming on stuff. There was nothing. I mean, those guys had their parts down. We had solid demos, but no vocals were ever recorded. We started and I just I fell short. I just, again, just lost my steam on it. And timing is everything. And it just came and went. And then I got swooped away into the touring world and nothing was the same after that. Fair enough. That that answers one of the long time questions I've had about how far you were into the process of you know the next record because yeah there were two EPs pretty much mapped out. I want to say four or five songs in each one. Those guys had pretty much demoed and had ready to go, and I just never sang all of them. Yeah, kind of shifting back to Times of Grace, the thing that kind of ended up changing a lot of things for you. You know the vulnerability of that record of the hymn of a broken man is it was once again really shocking to see another side of you uh vocally and i know a lot of it stemmed from adam's back surgery and you know him coming up with a lot of it uh while recovering but i wonder you know you said that you know at the time you were working in bars you know you kind of had you know another band that other bands that just kind of never really took off did you feel a sense of greater pressure with this project given the fact that more eyes and ears were going to be on it since it was going to be put out on a label i did uh, essentially in the beginning but that project spanned a greater part of a year year and a half to even make the record in between adam's touring schedule and when I could actually get vacation time or time off to go to Massachusetts to record that. And we finished the record and it just sat in a shelf for years. So yeah, at first it was, I was like, wow, I have this new platform. I have all this like stuff to say. Uh, and I felt the pressure, but then as time went on, the pressure got less and we just got more invested in creating a great record with no intention 
mind you, of playing it out live. When that project started, it was like, let's just put out an album. Adam had these songs. He didn't want to give the kill switch. He wanted it to be more intimate, different. So when we started that thing, there was zero intention of playing that stuff live. So we created a record that was actually quite difficult for me to reproduce live because I had never really jammed on it. So when we did go to tour it, I, you know, I fell short vocally. I was having a rough time with it. But um, I'm super proud of that record. But now I listen back to it, especially in light of the new album, which is done. And I've listened to the new album on my own. It's just leaps and bounds better. It's more uh, creative. It's more genuine, I feel. I feel like there was definitely a bleed-in of Killswitch influence on that first record. And how could it not be with me and Adam working together? And I feel like this new record sort of pulls away from that and really sort of defines us and our sound as Times of Grace. Where I listen back to, you know, like Live in Love and certain songs, I was like, yeah, you can hear the Killswitch influence. And that's cool, but it's also, and fans, I'm sure I appreciated that, but I'm very happy to pull away from that and do something different for this new record. I know for me, being a, having gotten to see that tour uh, that you did, which I'm really glad I did because it, it felt like a project that would have never I would have never have seen. So it's almost like getting to see Team Sleep at this point. Like I'm glad I got to see him the one time I did because I don't know that that band will ever come out and tour it again. Um, but you know, songs like the acoustic version of Willing and the Forgotten One showcased I showcased a side of you, and I think also Adam as well. If I'm being honest, that I don't know that a lot of people knew you two had in you because they're kind of more more of that bluesy kind of soulful singing that I don't really know that anyone knew that you two could produce so well together. Um, so I know for me, I'm hoping that maybe that's more of a, more of the side that we're going to see on this, the next uh, release or releases since you said there's an EP as well. Yeah. It's a mixed bag. There's definitely some of that sort of uh, bluesy. It's definitely a lot of blues, I should say. Um, but it comes in different forms. I'd say there's a mixture of a touch of some stoner vibes going on there. There's definitely a touch of like, uh, I guess the term would be post-metal, atmospheric metal, you know, guitars with like a lot of delay and like space with, you know, big, heavy bass and slow moving stuff. There's um, more rock and roll, more indie rock. It's kind of a real mixed bag of, of styles. And there's still traces of the metal that we're known for here and there. Uh, but I think with the direction we are heading in and why there's going to be two releases this first release we wanted to make sure it sort of didn't really have any of that heavy kill switchy vibe to it so the first record is going to be what i feel is our signature sound that we've sort of embraced and it just kind of happened through adam's writing and then the ep will be a little bit more of the metal that you have come to know and reflect on the first record so it's a real mixed bag and i'm glad to say i don't think you could really put a genre on us because of that. So we'll see. I'm sure people are going to still call it metalcore, even though I don't even know what the fuck that term means anymore. But I, I'm happy to say that I, I think that we are no longer going to be called that style of music because I think we're more of a heavy metal rock band, if you will. It's funny, when I was talking to uh, Justin on the, well, what would become your last uh, tour date here in Grand Rapids, uh, you know, he was kind of making the comment that it's getting harder for him to play uh, some of the Kill Switch stuff and that he would like to do something more in the post-rock kind of thrice -y. Oh, he's about that, yep, yep. So as you were just kind of saying that, I'm like, 
Well, I hope maybe you tap Justin to do some of that, since it seems like that's where he really wants to be. <laughs> We've got our drummer, actually, Dan, who played drums on the, who's a touring drummer, recorded drums on this record. So it's not Adam on drums. It's a guy named Dan who's an incredible drummer with like a really cool feel. He comes from more of a um, R&B, indie rock vibe. So he's got this swagger, this swagger that just brings a whole other sound to what we're doing. So I think that it's the right fit because, again, it pushes further out of the kill switch world and allows us to sort of be times of grace without the kill switch ties, which we're both, all three of us, I'd say both me and Adam, but also Dan is very into the idea of pushing. Although Dan Dan was kind of bummed we did the separate uh, EP with the heavier stuff. He wanted the heavier stuff on the first release because we are talking about playing shows so he was like, oh, I'm stoked to play these heavy songs, but probably not going to be happening uh, if, I should say when, because Adam seems very adamant to tour on this, uh, at least a, a U.S. and a European U.K. tour. But we'll see, man. I feel like Killswitch hasn't even had the opportunity to, to roll out our record, so I don't know what the hell's going to happen a lot. You know, over the last few years, you know, and you were kind of talking about uh, playing around on your laptop with different stuff, you've experiment, experimented with scoring videos that you've taken and kind of putting your own music to them and so forth. Um, what is that process of learning another musical medium taught and or brought out in you? I think music is very visual. And I think that that's sort of solidified my thought of when I write lyrics or when I hear a riff for a demo, I get images in my mind. And for me to be able to write music to the image, seeing the image first, I really enjoy it. I think it really drives the music. And it's something I'd love to do a lot more of, but I'm in no way, shape, or form a professional when it comes to instrumentation. I consider myself a better programmer than I do an actual performer of the instruments. You know, with guitar, bass, drums, and keyboard, I'm definitely more comfortable in the electronic world than I am sitting behind a kit and trying to hammer out a beat, which I'm decent at that stuff. But I have much more, um, much more of a range and much more experience with electronic music, so... I'd like to do more of that, but it would definitely have to be in the realm of electronic music. So um, I'll definitely be doing more on my own because I love taking cool video. If all goes well, I'm doing a road trip soon to a bunch of national parks, and I plan on doing audiovisuals for that, which will probably fall under the category of my ambient project, The Way Back Within. But I also may be gathering images and footage for Times of Grace as well because Times of Grace is very much was – a visual project when we first came out with it. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, like, and I guess maybe I, I chose the wrong project to attach to this, but I'll, I, I still think it applies. But do you feel that this endeavor is kind of what has prepared you for the rollout of, you know, I put Dead Trees because a lot of the stuff you've been doing is visual and audio, so an audiovisual representation of those things. Um, but do you think that's kind of where that project was kind of born out of? Yeah, I would say that because, honestly, my... Um my girlfriend, her profession for 10 solid years uh, was an aerial performer, a pole dancer, an acrobat. She does, does silks and liras. She's worked at metal bars. She's worked at music festivals. She is a crazy athlete. And when you watch her do what she does, it's badass. She like does shit. I remember first seeing her perform and she does this death drop where she lets go of a pole and catches it before her head hits. And she headbangs on the downbeat of a song. And we'll get up and like, she's just on it. She's this warrior type person with her performance. 
that's totally where Dead Trees came from. I'm like, I want to write the music that you're going to do this stuff to. Because she's doing it in the metal bar to like, you know, Crozier Conformity, Down, like, you know, Soundgarden, Faith No More, all these different bands. And she's learning these songs and these routines and she's destroying it. And I was like, yo, I want to write the music for you to do this to. So initially, Dead Trees was going to be just me DJing sort of dubstepy metal sounding stuff that she likes. And then the light bulb went off because she's got a really cool, smoky, bluesy voice. And I was like, why don't we just do like a duo duet thing? And during certain parts of the song, we don't have to have vocals or I can do vocals. So that gives you a chance to like perform. So the big picture was to create these crazy visuals with her doing what she does and me creating the soundtrack for it. Uh, and what it has turned into is a project with the two of us where one day when we do eventually perform, I'll have my electronics set up with a guitar and different things to like create the music. She'll have a microphone and she'll have her equipment set up and we'll both perform going back and forth be between being the front person and then me laying back allowing her to do her thing, having sections of the songs that are written specifically for her to do her performance to that may or may not have vocals. So it's very much, much a mixture of dance, intelligent sort of dance industrial music, a little bit of metal and like trip hop. But it was all definitely started for me watching her perform and being in awe of her power and her presence and wanting to selfishly be the soundtrack to it. <laughs> you know, kind of speaking a little bit more to Dead Trees, I, I couldn't help but think of how many people you've collaborated with over the your whole career. Is the collaborative collaborative process something that you are just really inspired by and just kind of seek out? That's kind of something I just fall into because people, <laughs> people are always asking me to do stuff. And I nine times out of ten, turn them down. If I could tell you the amount of collaborations I've had to turn down, uh, whether it's you know just because I'm too busy or in some cases just completely disinterested, um, it just happens. And you know, it's so liberating working on – the way back within as much as it's way out of my wheelhouse is what people know me for because there is nobody talking about it there is no one that i'm showing and going what do you think doesn't matter it's so liberating to just write what i write i think this is good i put it out it's actually my most successful side project financially on Bandcamp. my meditative ambient stuff has actually helped pay some bills which is funny um and with dead trees i'm writing all the music first and then showing my girlfriend then she's critiquing it and giving her insight because she's very much a EDM person. She's really, really, her favorite music on the planet is dubstep. She's the reason I even went, like we talked, Electric Forest, and I got, started getting into that community and into that type of music, which I never thought I would. And now having gone to certain shows and gone to Electric Forest and seeing how that community works and operates and hearing some of that music and being blown away about the heaviness and the aggressiveness of some of that music with the bass and the beats, she's, um, she's inspired a lot. And she's helped me so much with that project that the collaboration became, like I'm not annoyed when she says something. I'm like, oh, interesting. It's so interesting because I never thought of it that way. Or she'll show me a song by someone she likes and go, check that out. Tell me that's not as heavy as a hatebreed hate breakdown. And I'm like, fuck, that is heavy as fuck. Funny story too, at Electric Forest, I'm watching performances and I'm actually fucking doing what I would do in a pit and it works for this shit. And it was just the light bulb just went on. Like I need to write this kind of music and make it even heavier. 
So that's kind of what I'm trying to do. Yeah, the only few instances I have of going to shows like that, I saw Bass Nectar a long time ago. Yeah, and in the middle of the set, he cranks out uh, My Own Summer by Deftones. And I was like, fuck yeah. But like hearing yeah. it through that sound system, you're just like, this is the heaviest thing in my I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> oh, cool, right? Yeah, the bass tones alone are what got me because I'm a big reggae head. I love dub and old school reggae. I love, love, love the sound of that bass when a good dub, like reggae's old school dub song hits. I love that shit. And hearing, because dubstep was born out of dub. It just, it just morphed into this other thing that it is now. But some of the artists, you mentioned Bass Nectar, he does this. Uh, Space Jesus, Liquid Stranger, they're guys who are doing the modern dubstep thing, but they still point back to dub and play the reggae rhythms. And that, that's the shit that gets me. When I hear a heavy, heavy reggae bass line with all those blips and bleeps and womps and shit they put all over it, <laughs> the face of it is that reggae, like that wubby, like fucking heavy thing that just hits you right in the chest. And when you put that with a good beat, you know, especially uh, dubstep beats, it's heavy as fuck, man. And you can legitimately do what you would do in a pit at a hardcore show. It's the same BPMs, the same feeling, the same breakdown in dubstep. And that's kind of what made me fall in love with it. Yeah, it is kind of interesting when you start finding other parallels to the music you like or, you know, it, it is... Like another show we went to, and I thought it was kind of weird. Like my wife and I randomly, since we live so close to the intersection here in Grand Rapids, you know, sometimes we'll just be like, "Fuck it, want to go to this show?" Like we got nothing else going on at night, so like that's how we ended up at a Waka Flocka show. And I think the dude's fun as shit when you go see him live. Don't listen to him outside of it. But I remember at one point he's like, "All right, let's start a mosh pit." Like he comes into the crowd, and then like you got all these like kid, literally kids, uh, as I'm in my mid thirties, but they're like, "Don't touch me." And you're like, dude, it's a fucking mosh pit. Everyone's pushing. Like, I have, I can't control where I go when the crowd sways to the right or left. Like, it just happens. And it was like one of those where I was like, this kind of sucks, though, because, like, I was kind of really getting into it and vibing out with this part. And, you know, like, you know, Waka pointed to, especially at me and my wife, but, like, more so me. He's like, yeah, I know this tattoo kid over here is going to, like, start a mosh pit. Let's go. And, like, we were having fun, but it kind of got ruined because, like, yeah, like the like teenage couples who are holding on to each other and something like that. And like, don't touch me. And I'm like, a show is a on the floor. A show is not where if you don't want to be touched, don't be like near the barricade. Like, I don't know. It just it was it was weird. Like, I enjoyed it, but then I also kind of hated it because I'm like, I feel like this is what shows are becoming now, where it's like everyone has to have their ten for social distancing, their ten foot space, and God forbid you ever get into in front of it. Yeah, dude, it's funny as I've gotten older and and with some of the privilege that I have being in Killswitch. I prefer going in VIP and having a seat, man. <laughs> no, same. Yeah. Um, unless, it's, you know, unless it's like going to see Agnostic Front or something like that. Like, I'm in. I'm in the pit. I'm fucking shit up. For the most part. You know, I have to gauge, you know, find the biggest skinhead and see what he's doing before I decide to commit to a pit. But when I go to shows, for the most part, man, especially after touring and I'm only off for two weeks and I'm going to a show – my ass is up in VIP with a drink in my hand and I'm chilling the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, I've, I feel you. Like, that's kind of where I am with a lot of stuff now. Like, I would rather see uh, and hear. But, like, there was, like, there was a funny time. Uh, we went to go see Acacia Strain and I was, like, basically in between the barricade and the stage. And they started uh, with Whoa Shut It Down, like, old school Acacia Strain. I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going in the pit for this. Gave my wife my glasses, my beer, my wallet, like, everything. Love it. I got to where I thought I would be at a good spot to have someone pick me up to crowd surf me and all that shit. 
And then I look up and I realize I'm one person in front of the barricade. And I was like, dude, that's stupid. I'm not doing that. And then I just hung out there the rest of the time, had fun. But I was just like, I was all hyped to like go have the show experience of a hardcore show. And then I was like, oh, fuck, I'm at the barricade. <laughs> yeah, see, I don't go to shows without barricades. That's why I mentioned Agnostic Fun. Anytime like that band comes around, I'm so fucking there. Like, there's, I still absolutely love to go to hardcore shows and punk shows and dance my ass off. Granted, after about two minutes, I've got cold lungs and I'm going to puke, but <laughs> I'll still get in there and do it. And I'll break, come out, you know, wring my shirt out, go back in for a second time. I still got it, but I definitely cannot. I mean, back in the day, I would be in there for the whole set, but I can't do that shit anymore. But I still love to dabble every once in a while. Show <laughs> old, guy, old guys still got it, you know, it's fun. Yeah, then you just go wheeze in the corner away from everyone's view. <laughs> I've done that before. I've actually definitely done that, and the crowd parted, and across the way was another guy doing the same thing, and we're both just like, yeah, fuck yeah. We're old and fuck. <laughs> you know, I was kind of thinking about, uh, you know, the project you're doing with your, your girlfriend, and I just recently, like in the last week, repainted my house and have been doing a lot of house projects, and I know that it has led to a few disagreements with my wife. You know, I'm cleaning you know the banisters and all that kind of stuff and trying to tape everything off and then here she comes because she just wants to get it done starts painting and i'm like no 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 it's uh, you gotta you know just little disagreements were you worried uh about doing something so hands-on and creative with your significant other yes yes and it has already created arguments um but i think it's a matter of i think for me respecting and listening being the person that I am, and this is my job, this is what I do, I came into this project initially being like, I got this. Just do what I tell you, and we're going to make good songs. And she was like, no, I fucking love this music. You want me to be a part of this. I want to have my say. And it definitely, we definitely did this at first, and then it was like, oh, fuck me. Of course. This is a collaboration. Calm the fuck down. And the shit she suggests, make the songs. Now that I've like you know calmed myself down, realized that there is real value in listening, which is a huge thing for any relationship, allowing that person to speak and actually listening, uh, I think it's benefited everything. And I look forward to seeing what she comes up with. It's just being respectful and calm. Like I'm the kind of person that when I know I can get something done, I'm at it. Go 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 go. Let's get it done. Let's go. Let's go. And she is not that way at all. She'll take a smoke break. She'll smoke a joint. She'll think about it. She'll ponder it. She'll rewrite stuff. And I'm like at the keyboard like, <laughs> but I've learned to like, all right, it's smoke break time. She does that. I'll go breathe somewhere, relax, go outside for a minute. We reconvene and like it flows. So it's, I think it's a matter of like figuring out how to make that work. As with a relationship, it's the same fucking thing. How does it work? Learning how to do the tick for tack thing and respecting each other and how the process works. So it's been very humbling, to say the least, and I'm sure it will continue to be so. But uh, she's got great vision. She's got great ideas, and I respect her. So I think it will be okay. Not to say that we won't argue again. I'm sure we will. <laughs> Did you – Given the fact that this is your job, it is your profession that you have been a part of for so long, did you give her any advice uh, preemptively before putting out the music, knowing that the internet is what it is and people are going to be shitty just to be shitty and how to maybe best be prepared for that? Yeah, I mean, being a pole dancer and a performer in aerial arts and being very hot and back in her day, she used to wear very skimpy clothes. She's very aware of the, of the shit of the internet. 
So um, she's pretty prepared. She's got really thick skin, even though she's sensitive as well. Um, so I didn't really have to prepare her too much. She's seen a lot through me too, you know, like when I post up stuff and people's reactions, she's been privy to that. Just by looking over my shoulder, I'll show her things, you know. But she's she's pretty uh, experienced with uh, bullshit on the internet with, with her profession. Um, but the one thing I have really done to help her and which has been helpful for me too as well is teaching her how to warm up her voice properly, how to recognize when you're sharp or you're flat, um, and teaching her how to sing better. It actually helped me uh, as I'm teaching it, I'm learning more. So that's been a really interesting experience. And uh, it's really rewarding too when she nails a take and I'm like, that sounded great. You know, like it's been cool. I look forward to that as well because, you know, I'm open to continue to learn, period, especially about the voice. I don't think I'll ever, ever stop learning about the voice. It's it's such an abstract, difficult instrument um, to maneuver and navigate around. And I feel like I've only just hit my stride in the past few years with it. So I feel comfortable in my own skin, finally, after years of abuse and uh, a vocal surgery, too, which was a huge wake-up call. So it's a constant learning process. Kind of as we're we're winding now. Now the weapon, you guys finally fucking released this EP. Because <laughs> I know talking with Josh, like we did our chat for the podcast right before the Kill Thrax Two tour. He was talking about that, so I mean that kind of tells you how long ago it's been in the works of being a thing. Um, how how did you kind of find it to tap into a genre you hadn't really gone full bore into? Easy. I grew up punk. Punk was my first love. Bands like The Exploited and GBH, um, Discharge, those are bands I grew up listening to before any, like, I had, I mean, obviously I'd heard bands like Metallica and Anthrax, so they're part of my repertoire, but I wasn't obsessed with them. It was kind of like what my brother listened to, and I kind of dug on it. Anthrax would later become a band I fucking absolutely loved when I was younger, but my first real, real love was Minor Threat. To this day, still my favorite band. You put that shit on, I know every single word, and I want to punch the fucking walls. Like, I love that band. But um, punk and hardcore is in my blood. It's in my DNA. It's it's my first love. So it was easy, if I could be honest. It's easy for me. And I fucking love it. I have so much fun doing it. And I can't. And they've already started writing new shit, so... It's not going to be another couple of years for another release. So it'll probably be like, <laughs> if quarantine keeps up, we'll probably have another record soon. <laughs> you know, during our Instagram live with Josh, or, uh, yeah, I said that right. <laughs> I, well, I realized I was like, oh, fuck, I'm talking to you. I was like, no, 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 I, I'm talking in the right tense of who I'm talking about. Um, you know, something he said, and I, I thought it was, I thought it was really like weird uh, at first, but the more I thought about it, I was like, no, actually, there might be something to that, which is weird. You know, he says that you, you swear in the in a song, which I guess I realized you haven't in anything. And so while I, I personally don't think it's that big of a fucking deal, and I mean, if you anyone has seen you or heard you impress or whatever, like, obviously you do. But is it something that maybe you had purposely not done in your lyrics? Yes. Yeah. I, uh, for many reasons. One, being raised a very strict Christian um, and... Also being raised by, which I no longer call myself a Christian. I am a person of faith and I believe in God. I don't need a label of a religion, uh, so I'll just get that out of the way. Um, and also being raised by a minister 
who is a scholar. So he's this. And my father has two master's degrees and a PhD. He is a absolute scholar. So I was always raised with the idea of language is powerful. Language gets your point across, and I've always felt like I never really needed to fucking swear to get my point across. Um, where with the weapon, the anger I was feeling and the sheer intensity of what I was saying, there were moments where I'm like, I need to use this word to get my point across and for people to feel what I'm trying to say. And I, there are songs, punk songs I listen to, and they'll swear. And if the swear wasn't there, it just wouldn't have that. Ugh. not visceral. Right. So for me with the weapon, absolutely called for. And I did it during the live takes, and I'm like, yes. That's staying in. Literally, Josh and Chris were like, whoa, <laughs> dropping F-bombs. And I'm like, yeah, dude, it makes sense, total sense. I think the first one I did it was in um, – uh, what's the name of that song? Uh, da, 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 da. Is it Knuckle Up? Yeah, Knuckle Up. That song is a it's a mixed bag about like just being really in a situation where I'm ready to fight somebody. And this is actually an actual situation. And I found a way to like – quell my anger enough to not to rise above it but the song is about what i want to do and just being angry as fuck and like don't test me because i will snap and uh the spoken part is like ah, oh, that didn't fucking work for you and i was like I, that's what i would say in the street if we are discussing something and i'm i'm like face to face with you i was like why would it not be in the lyrics this song is about that so i wasn't gonna hold back so yeah after that one i dropped a few more so now it's funny to see the album on uh, Spotify or Apple Music and see the little E for example. Like, I got my first E's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I put them on the podcast even if I know that we don't. Like, there will be episodes that don't have any, and I'm like, eh, I don't care. It, it, but it, it is funny to see how potentially from a marketing standpoint and all that kind of stuff, you know, just the weirdness of it. Like, you know, going back to Deftones, I know Chino changed some of the lyrics on White Pony. So technically it didn't have the the uh, parental advisory sticker on it. So they could technically get it into Walmart and sell it and so forth. So there's a little bit of a marketing aspect to some of these things that I don't think people are aware of as to why it matters maybe not to swear or to change some lyrics around. But it also made me wonder... With this, you know, maybe this project, it fits a lot more to do something like that. But has it maybe, maybe make, made you reconsider opening up whatever words you want to use to convey the message that you feel? Like, I'm not saying you're going to just come out with a, a holy shit, fuck, fuck, fuck song on Kill Switch, but it's like, I feel like if you were to do something in that regard, or even Times of Grace, whatever, I feel like given some of the, the messages you put in, especially at times, kind of this feeling of, of, hopelessness that turns into hope that there would be spots for that where it's just this raw visceral reaction and feeling because that's what we would go through yeah i don't i don't uh i never say never but i don't foresee that happening but if i get the notion absolutely absolutely i have no qualms or uh sort of um no problem doing that but so far just never really felt like it fit the weapon's the first one, so we'll see. Words are your weapons. Yeah, brother. Absolutely. That's where the name of the band comes from. Kind of a last question for you. With you covering so many genres and styles that we've talked about, what is something that you haven't done that you would like to dip your toes into? Like, do you can you drop a hot 16? Are you, like, just this uh, this closet, like, dope rapper that we just don't know about? 
Yes, I can absolutely freestyle and rap, 100%. I've been doing it for a long, long time behind closed doors with fellow MCs at parties. I can rap, absolutely. But will I ever do it? Probably not. Probably not. I think if I do dip my toes into something that's way out of my wheelhouse, it'd be an old school reggae dub project. Probably not with vocals, maybe, but reggae music. That's definitely on my, maybe even ska, reggae ska. That's definitely on my radar and like something I'd like to aim at. But it would be um, different. I'm not going to be inciting Rastafarian lyrics or anything like that whatsoever. But like dub, I love dub music. Like King Tubby is like one of my all-time favorites. I listen to him constantly. Instrumental dub is probably what I would go for. I love, love, love hip-hop. It's huge, huge, huge to me. But I just don't foresee me taking that plunge. I'm not sure who even wants to hear that. <laughs> Might be surprised. Yeah, who knows? I mean, at one point, no one thought Post Malone was going to be a thing, and the metal community basically shunned him and got rid of him, and now look at him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I never say never, but I just, I don't know. If I ever did do some sort of a hip-hop thing, it would be abstract. It wouldn't be straight-up boom-bap old school. It would definitely be, in some ways, abstract and odd. But we'll see. I don't know, man. <laughs> I know I could kill it, though. I know I could kill it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this is the part where have you plugged the socials and whatever band you want to plug socials for or whatever, but where can people find you online? Yeah, just the uh, only place I am is Instagram. Jesse underscore D underscore Leach, L-E-A-C-H. That's the only place you'll find me. Uh, and I always talk about my projects on there. You can find links to stuff. I'm pretty active on it. I don't respond a ton, but I'm post a bunch. Um, yeah, but kill, obviously, Kill Switch Engage, Times of Grace, The Weapon, Dead Trees, uh, The Way Back Within, and more to come. I was going to say, did The Way Back Within turn into a project page? Because I know that's not necessarily how it started. My personal page. Um, it's I do post that music on there, but that's also just for my everyday stuff as well. Poetry, photography, you know, nature worship, that kind of stuff. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This was a lot of fun, I think. Yeah, thanks, dude. I enjoyed it as well, for sure. So that was my interview with Jesse Leach of Killswitch Engage, of Nothing Stays Gold, of Corinne, of Times of Grace, of Seamless, and a slew of other awesome bands. Just want to take a moment to thank him for taking so much time out of his day. I, I really enjoy this chat. I In my wildest dreams, when I was hoping to get him, I wouldn't have expected that we would have gotten almost two hours with him and to have him be so honest and open about a lot of the things that he was honest and open about. Um, like I said, kind of in the intro, the bigger thing for me was honestly just the fact that I thought we were so close to getting new The Empire Shall Fall music and to hear him be like, yeah, it was really tough. Uh, I, I'm not necessarily trying to put words in his mouth, but I, I you know, in so many words, he was kind of like, I, I just was kind of the weak link. Those dudes are so prolific and so great that it was so hard for me to figure out how to write something over it. Yeah, that that part was pretty shocking to me as well, because I really didn't. I, I mean, I just I couldn't have imagined that with him being as prolific as he is, uh, at least to me. But um, yeah, I, I really I really enjoyed how 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 intricate this chat got. And I mean, maybe not intricate's not the right word, but just the uh, the whole idea of talking about everything other than the main thing, because like if you if you really think about it, like 
we would not have gotten this interview out of Jesse if this was a Kill Switch Engage press cycle interview. We would have gotten 20 minutes. We would have talked about whatever new thing they were doing, and that would have been it. And so, um, you know, in contrast to whatever Mister One Star Review thinks about it, um, this was th- this is this was the better chat to have. I think so. Um, I learned a lot, and I feel like I know quite a bit about him through following his career. And there was a lot of stuff like you and I walked away just kind of going like, wow, I, I had no idea. Yeah. And just like the intensely personal, like, yep, I was kind of like not doing anything and life sucked. And, you know, like that was uh, that was quite a bit. That was quite a bit to take in. Yeah, it was one of those that this kind of reminded me a little bit of the Jesse from Misery Signals episode two, where it's like we're able to kind of laugh about some stuff. And then like just, you know, two seconds later, you're like falling right into a bit of like real serious shit. And I don't know, like to me, like this may not be an episode that like fans of Jesse will love. I'm sure somebody will find something to bitch about it. It is what it is in this medium. But the thing to me is. I think it's so inspiring. Jesse always is kind of an inspiring individual to me. But I think the thing that's even more so is this dude has had so many ups and downs. He's done so many things, so many different styles of music. He's not afraid to to be who he is and put himself out there. And sometimes it doesn't work out the way it, he thinks it will or that, you know, you would hope that it will. But it's never deterred him from being unapologetically him. And I think that was something that just resonated throughout this whole conversation is that, like, yeah, maybe this project didn't work or whatever didn't take off and wasn't the big thing, but it never stopped him from putting his all into it. And sometimes, you know, and I, Dan, I think you can probably agree with this from listening to podcasts or interviewing people yourself. There are definitely some bitter ass motherfuckers out there who, Oh yeah. You know, after leaving the big, like, you know, that if they would have left kill switch before it took off and became the big kill switch that it is now, that there might've been a lot of people when they go to do the next thing, that that's the chip on the shoulder. Like I need to get back where I was, or I need to attain these things that the slights against me or whatever. And I never got the feeling that Jesse was that way, that it, that he was driven by ego or to prove that he is as good as, you know, everyone thinks he is or was from alive or just breathing or whatever. It always felt like everything he's done is because he genuinely is passionate about it. And I, I, that just is so invigorating to hear, especially someone who's been in the industry for 20 plus years. Yeah, totally. Like it's, it's definitely a, um, like he, he doesn't come across as bitter. Um, he doesn't even really come across as like that. He like made a bad decision, like to, to leave kill switch. I mean, even then, even even when End of Heartache came off, came out, he he was on a song on, on that. You know what I mean? So it wasn't. I don't think it was ever anything beyond a totally cool, clean break. So he, you know, was able to avoid that bitterness, right? In a way, in a way, maybe that somebody that was kicked out of a band couldn't. Absolutely. All of that aside, this episode kind of is a little bit longer, and I think it's a equally fitting way for episode 251, uh, after that really awesome chat with Jesse's Rask of Misery Signals, to kind of, you know, one-two punch with the two Jessies. Um, so if you would like to keep up with Jesse, it's simple enough. You can go to Instagram at Jesse underscore D underscore Leech. Uh, that is his pretty much only source of social media. You can find him on Twitter. It's I against I, E-Y-E against I, the letter I. Um, but he's not very active on that at all, so you can follow it, but don't be surprised when nothing gets posted. As for the various bands he's a part of, I'm going to try to make this as easy as possible. Um, just honestly look in the show notes. Um, there's so many bands, and we're going to tag as many of them as we can in the show notes. Uh, just make it as easy as possible for you to check up with all things Jesse. Um, and Dan, 
also has a million fucking podcasts, so he can tell you where he can be found on the internet as well. I can be found, well, all my podcasts can be found at DiscussMetal.com, um, and you can send me an email at DiscussMetalDan at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at DiscussMetalDan, if you notice kind of a theme there. I'm on Facebook, too, under Daniel Terry, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm here for you. And speaking of being here for you, if you would like to keep up with all things this podcast, it is simple enough. Just go to BrewSpeakPod.com. It literally has any way that you can communicate with us or find this podcast. If you aren't able to uh, just go there simply enough, Bruce Speak Pod, everywhere. Uh, if you would like to see the video of this, uh, it is up over on YouTube. Check it out. All hour and 40 some odd minutes. Uh, it's on. I, I just left it up unedited. I didn't feel like fucking with it. So you get an extra like four and a half minutes of me blabbering uh, throughout. And another thing you can find over on our website is uh, actually something that we're sponsoring, which is uh, the ForTheNomads.org silent auction. We are supporting them. Uh, we donated to help support the uh, the people putting on this, this awesome cause. Uh, we've had Frank Fidel one of the founders of uh, the For the Nomads on the podcast a handful of times. Uh, basically, this is a fundraiser to raise money for out-of-work uh, behind-the-scenes crew of the touring industry. Uh, currently, they have raised over $110,000, and they have some really awesome things up in the silent auctions. Uh, currently, right now, they have guitars from In This Moment that are up for auction. Brian Garris of Knocked Loose. Uh, has a skateboard from a different shade of blue up that he signed. Uh, they have stuff from AFI. Um, I've been busting my ass helping them get some stuff lined up for this next round, and I'll announce the one because I already posted it on Facebook, but uh, we got D Snyder uh, to donate something, so I'm looking forward to uh, that because uh, D is fucking awesome, and someday we'll get him on the podcast. Um, but all of that said, uh, it's a great cause, so if you can, go over to ForTheNomads.org. Uh, you can donate if you want, just straight up every little bit helps. Uh, sharing the links helps, uh, and the silent auctions. Bid on those if there's something that you would like to bid on. Uh, it's all going to a great cause, so just want to shout them out and support them. Uh, they've been big supporters of us over here, as well as our actual sponsors for this podcast. I'm uh, going to go through with this real quickly. On Point Paul May, keep your beer and hair looking on point. Use our code BSP15, get 15% off your total purchase order. Rockabilia.com has over 500,000 items on their online store. They're all officially licensed through the bands. So not only when you buy a t-shirt or buy some gloves or buy a candle or buy whatever else it is that you're into, not only are you supporting Rockabilia, but you're supporting the bands as well. So it's a win-win. And if you use our code BREW15, you get 15% off your total order. So it's a win-win-win all the way across the board. You're supporting us. We're supporting them. They're supporting us. Supporting you. It's it's very it's very just self-indulgent supporting over here. It's a, it's a <laughs> vicious cycle of support. Um, but it is uh, greatly appreciated. And lastly but not leastly is The Bean Bastard. I actually oh, brought, there it is. I brought my Sproton pack with me to post on the Instagram live and the Facebook lives and all that shit we're doing. Um, they are a great company. They are out on the front lines donating coffee to various workers who have to work, uh, the essential workers as they are. And uh, you can go over to thebeanbastard.com, pick up some delicious coffee, follow them on Facebook and Instagram at The Bean Bastard. Let them know that we sent you. Buy and support a local business if you can. So thanks to all of our sponsors. And from the Brutally Speaking Podcast, I am John. And I am Dan. We will talk to you all next week.